Welcome back to What in the World. My name is Ryan, joined by Andre. Uh, it has been a quite a while since we've done our weekly What in the World. Sorry for the absence, but we are back. Andre is stateside. Andre, what's going on with you? I don't know, but I have some great news. Uh, ABBA, one of my favorite bands of all time, is doing is releasing a new studio album, 10 songs. First time in 40 years. They're going to do a virtual concert too. But I really hope there's a live concert because, you know, amidst all the death and carnage that's happening in the world right now, the pandemic, the Afghanistan withdrawal, everything else that's happening in all the other countries, we could truly use some ABBA. Maybe that's the reason chaos is reigning, because we don't have ABBA in the world. But ABBA is coming back with a 10-song studio album, so that's the great news. Did you just say ABBA is your favorite? One of my favorites. I also like Huey Lewis and News, Def Leppard. You were born in the wrong generation. Let's just make that clear for our audience. Andre, you're in your 20s. I was born in a couple of (laughs) That's fine. I like Mamma Mia, just like I think most people do. Um, so sure, I'll listen to some ABBA to distract myself from the chaos around the world. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah. So that's the good news. But now for the the bad news and all of that stuff. So yeah. So after, we've been watching uh, with despair uh, what's been happening in Afghanistan since the withdrawal started a few weeks. Well, really, I mean, the withdrawal was started, and then the war officially came to an end. August 30th, uh, August 31st in Afghanistan time. Sean Spicer was tweeting about how we left 24 hours early. He does not understand time zones uh, for some reason. But yeah, we left Afghanistan. Finally, no U.S. troops on the ground. The evacuation was messy. It was very messy. We got about 130,000 people out, out of there. There's been some criticism because there's been a lack of clarity regarding how many Americans actually remain in Afghanistan, maybe below 200, but General McKenzie, who we've had on the podcast before, uh, said in the low hundreds. So no one's, I don't think they've really told us about that, but apparently the U.S. Army was working with the Taliban to figure out if we can escort some Americans to the airport. And then we had that just a tragic ISIS-K bombing that killed about 13 of our U.S. troops and lowered 200 Afghan people, women, men, and children, uh, who were outside the airport. And the president, President Biden, gave a very defiant speech a few days ago, uh, explaining and answering, answering the critics as to why he is withdrawing from Afghanistan and why he is not extending the presence of U.S. troops there. But... For now, it seems that our involvement has ended. Uh, Anthony Blinken has said that the State Department is going to take the lead on evacuating further Americans out. But really, I, I think that's that's that. And the Taliban is going to take it over and Al-Qaeda is sort of coming back in. And we'll sort of see how this country progresses. Again, we all of our kind of worst fears are kind of coming um, to a head right now. I, I've seen uh, images and videos of women protesting uh, the Taliban rule because they're no longer being allowed to uh, work in certain industries. I've seen people trying to get out of Afghanistan. There's stampedes at border crossings. Many of the neighboring countries are closing their borders uh, to Afghan um, immigrants. And so, uh, again, you know, we, Andre and I have kind of talked about this for months now about the implications of what the withdrawal will bring. And unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of them become reality, and it's really just 
awful, not only for the, the Afghan people, but the international community to see something like this happen. Yeah, again, the president has a point in terms of talking about why, why we should have left Afghanistan. Because, I mean, we were there for 20 years. We had a succession of massive mistakes made by Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden. I mean, Biden, the evacuation was his fault in terms of the messiness of it. Obviously, the Biden administration did not anticipate Kabul was going to fall that quickly. They should have. They should have at least had some knowledge to at least prevent some of the chaos. But leaving Afghanistan, I mean, I'm sort of of the view that you had to leave the country at some point. But it's just the style in which we left was just a bit messy and wrong. But... Truly, I mean, Afghanistan is, I think, evidence of a lot of the foreign policy establishment's sincere problem. I mean, we're doing all of these different things, some of which are academic-backed, some of which are very think-tanky. And what do we get for it? Afghanistan's back in the Taliban's hands and Al-Qaeda's sort of re-entering that picture. There was, I think there were some Al-Qaeda leaders who were being welcomed by throngs of people in some cities. So really, the U.S. foreign policy establishment has to get its act together, because clearly it's not working. Clearly it's not working, in my view. I, I completely agree. And, and so it'll be interesting to see the ways in which this will kind of impact the administration uh, in the longer term, as far as you know Biden's legacy, but also in the, the short and medium term, the actual impact in the region and in country, uh, not, yeah. not only for Afghan, the Afghan people, but also for U.S. operations, Western and NATO operations. Uh, because, as everyone has kind of said from you know the intel community, uh, not being able to operate in Afghanistan anymore because of the Taliban taking over really hurts our counterterrorism capabilities and intelligence yeah, gathering the, capabilities. The gathering of that intelligence, yeah. And when, when I first heard about the ISIS-K bombings that killed you know just those those people, it sort of made me harken back to the Beirut bombings in the early 1980s under the Reagan administration. And then I think President Reagan pulled out U.S. troops out of uh, Lebanon shortly after, thereafter. And then uh, also shades of Bill Clinton's, uh, the Somalia fiasco, Black Hawk Down, and that sort of disastrous uh, situation, that military situation that occurred. Uh, and we all know that Somalia led Bill Clinton to not, led President Clinton not intervening Rwanda, actually, right? So who knows if a similar type of situation will play out later in a President Biden's term, whether the Afghanistan withdrawal and the chaos around that withdrawal may color his perceptions of how to deal with future security threats, or not even future security threats to us, but threats to, you know, people abroad, right? Like internally people. We will certainly see. Um, all right, so let's move on, kind of go outside Afghanistan. Of course, we'll be returning to it likely week over week. Uh, but President Biden has met with a handful of world leaders um, in the interim. He met with Israel's Naftali Bennett, the prime minister. Uh, Biden has vowed a quote-unquote unshakable partnership with Israel. Uh, however, these two have you know, very diverging views when it comes to U.S.-Israel relations. Uh, of course, uh, you know, Prime Minister Bennett opposes any deal with Iran. Uh, the Prime Minister uh, and his coalition, which is interestingly enough, you know, his coalition, as we've talked about, is very diverse, includes a variety of parties. I'm still shocked it's maintained together 
uh, in for this long. But anyway, you know, he is attempting to expand settlements into the West Bank and uh, Palestinian territories. Uh, the Biden administration is opposed to that, of course, is certainly on track to restart some sort of negotiations or diplomacy with Iran on some sort of JCPOA round two. And so despite, you know, the on, on the surface, what they say is a very good working relationship, not a lot of agreement. Yeah. And I mean, to be clear, like, I mean, Bennett has has said before that there will not necessarily be a Palestinian state, uh, at least during his tenure in government, right? The Biden administration is, of course, for a two-state solution, which has sort of been uh, the, the, the goal of U.S. administrations in general. And uh, yeah, I mean, not a lot of room for agreement. I mean, Netanyahu's gone, right? But many of the Netanyahu positions Absolutely. still remain, especially in terms of foreign policy. Yep. I think if one thing's clear, I feel like Israel's foreign policy is somewhat consistent over administrations. Is that accurate to say? I would say the, yes, I would say in many ways, Naftali Bennett is a version of Bibi Netanyahu, which might be surprising to some, but really when you look at the policies, when you're going policy by policy, particularly when it comes to foreign policy, very similar. What about Lapid? Does Lapid have influence? Because isn't what, what is Lapid in the government? The Lapid being the more centrist, moderate, somewhat liberal type of guy. So Yair Lapid, yes. Yeah, so that's the interesting part. I mean, well, he's again the alternate prime minister and is now the minister of foreign affairs, but he doesn't really have. I mean, yes, he's part of this coalition, but he's not the head of state right now. Right? He's not you know head of government. But he's foreign minister. Yes, he's foreign minister, but the you, again, so you still despite. That uh, Lapid, while being maybe a bit more centrist than you know other remnants of the government, um, certainly does not believe, and I'd say many Israelis are not in favor of any sort of deal with Iran because of the threats. It's you know Bibi Netanyahu was kind of working off of a consensus in Israel, but when it comes to settlements and a two-state solution, it gets far more complicated. Mm, okay, I see. Yeah, I mean, that really like does make you wonder about the long-term prospects for peace in the region, right? Because for so many, I think for so many Americans and for so many folks who are our age, they've often identified Netanyahu with Israel, similar to how Thatcher was identified with Britain for th- throughout the 1980s and the early 1990s. And you'd think that when you have a new leader, that things are going to significantly change, especially in foreign policy. But I guess with foreign policy, some things are more consistent than other things. So, all right, if let's let's move on to another world leader. This was actually this past week. Uh, President um, Biden actually met with uh, Yair Lapid last week, but we have to catch up because we missed a week. So, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, was in the states. He's actually still in the states, um, but met with uh, President Biden and his team recently this week. They talked about a variety of issues. Their meeting actually went longer than was expected. Uh, of course, Ukraine has been fighting with um, Russian-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region. And so in the U.S., you know, under the Trump administration, was not very supportive of Ukraine. Of course, we know the famous, you know, phone call where, uh, you know, the president and the, those around his circle attempted to kind of strong arm uh, the Ukrainian government into investigating Biden and his family and other you know, connections. But it seems like President Biden has reasserted the U.S.'s commitment to Ukrainian sovereignty, to supporting Ukraine. Uh, and again, so Ukraine, you know, while being in Russia's sphere of quote-unquote influence, 
uh, seeks to have better relations with the West. Volodymyr Zelensky is a very Western looking leader of Ukraine, which is kind of a new development when you look at Ukrainian politics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Ryan. I mean, the meeting uh, was very interesting, but I, I sort of have a question. Has there been anything significant going on with Ukraine's neighbor, Russia, lately? I read an article uh, recently that said the this exodus of journalists, of uh, activists, and basically opposition-style people has really grown in recent months and like the last year. Is there, has there been anything going on? I know there was uh, some news about Putin basically threatening Google and some of the other, uh, like a- Apple and so on, to basically remove Alexei Navalny's app from uh, the Google store and the, the Apple store. But uh, has there been really anything in the news on Russia lately? Because I haven't heard too much about it with all the Afghanistan noise. Yeah, so Russia has for a long time cracked down on domestic journalists, uh, but there's been a recent foreign agent law that is now cracking down on, you know, quote unquote, foreign agents. And that includes a variety of individuals from Western uh, news organizations to even domestic organizations that could be deemed as, quote unquote, foreign agents. And so what this has meant is that a lot of foreign media, including journalists from, you know, BBC, uh, other, you know, Western outlets, particularly those like, you know, Voice of America, um, that is basically the, the U.S. government's media arm that operates. Uh, in, in around the world. And so they are being designated as foreign agents and undesirable organizations. And they're basically being kicked out because they can't operate in Russia as a foreign agent. Uh, the, the laws are very strict on the, on the types of activities that they can conduct in country. And so this is meant for not only media, but also any sort of opposition and um, you know, civil society organizations that have been far more restrictive on their activities. And it's really, again, gets to the heart of any sort of opposition movement in Russia. Um, it's another example of the Putin government just clamping down and even furthering the kind of authoritarian rule within Russia. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, uh, I mean, Put, Putin's probably going to be there for a good while longer, I'd, I'd suspect, especially and like, I mean, it seems like the opposition is just becoming weaker and weaker and weaker. I mean, it, Navalny, he's still in jail, right? That's correct. He is, he, is not, um, he is not a free man. He will likely be there for as long as the government wishes him to be. Um, and so, again, as we've talked about before, he was the face of Russia's opposition. He wasn't the opposition leader. Some people call him that. I wouldn't characterize him as that. Russia's opposition isn't really unified. There's just a lot of them. Fragmented. It's certainly fragmented. Uh, but, again, he was the face. Uh, he did great things on social media. Um, and with YouTube videos in particular, but without him in place and no one's really kind of succeeded him to kind of lead this movement in opposition to Putin and the Kremlin, uh, it's been very difficult. And with these new laws, it's even more difficult to try to find that person to kind of, you know, forge the path towards bringing down this regime. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do want to move, before we move on, I do want to move south a bit to Ethiopia. We've been talking about this a Tigray conflict for a while. We haven't talked about it lately, just because we—I think—we've all been sort of, uh, sort of uh, tired with the news that's been coming out of Afghanistan. It's really been hard to focus on other things that have been happening in the world, especially if you notice from our last "What in the Worlds" have all been about Afghanistan. But that situation in Tigray, that civil conflict, is still raging. There's basically five million people who really need assistance right now who are in the Tigray region. But there's been this blockade. The United Nations has basically stated there is a blockade that 
will not allow foreign aid and other types of aid to come into Tigray. And there's about to be a new famine. So all of these people are starving. Food supplies are nil. There are no food supplies. It's a terrible, terrible situation. Uh, the Ethiopian government has basically said, like, hey, we don't know what you're talking about. There is no blockade. But the UN has said, yeah, there is basically a de facto blockade. So millions of people are starving in Ethiopia as a result of this conflict. And hopefully there's a way out. But this this Ethiopian conflict is still really raging. I mean, yeah, Andre, we talked about uh, Ethiopia and the Tigray region in December. Yes. That's that when that was when we had Professor Terence Lyons on to give us a full breakdown of what was happening, as well as the history of of the region's kind of conflict with the the, the central government, um, which is again, it's just kind of insane that it's continued this long, and the government's kind of gotten away with a severe repression of the region. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like folks, do check that out. But I mean, the situation has significantly changed since December. There was armed conflict. And quite a bit else that's been happening. Uh, also, Ryan, uh, there's been some stuff that's been happening in Kashmir, in India, right? There is. And so it's been reported that India has basically closed down the internet or has been closing down social media after this separatist leader died in Kashmir. Uh, Syed Al-Ulani. Yes, exactly. The leader of the, the, the Kashmiri separatist movement. Uh, and so he he died on Wednesday evening, which led Indian authorities to not only deploy troops, but also to cut internet access. And so we've seen this before happen in Kashmir. Uh, this has been a yeah. tactic used by the Indian authorities. It's a tactic used by authorities around the world. Uh, and they were basically, this is a proactive effort, a proactive repressive effort, effort to ensure that there's no kind of outbreak of demonstrations or some sort of activity that could, you know, upset the the Indian government. You know, it's really interesting because, Ryan, we just released an episode with the former prime minister of Sri Lanka. One of the last questions they asked him was about social media. And uh, he ba- they basically shut down social media after some uh, race riots, some religious riots that occurred in Sri Lanka in about 2018. And then after these bombings that occurred in 2019, they also cut social media. And you see India sort of cutting social media and internet in Kashmir to prevent uh, any forms of riots, it, it really makes you wonder about how we can deal with social media in this regard, right? When social media can be used to mobilize violence, as we saw with the Capitol building, as we saw on January 6th, and this is a dissemination of uh, misinformation. But when you're doing this, when you're banning social media, it can be perceived as very anti-democratic, obviously, as we're seeing in Kashmir. It seems like a no-win situation. Uh, it's certainly understandable that the government wants to ensure that there's no sort of activities to blow things out of proportion, misinformation, fake news. But the internet is, I mean, in, at least in my opinion, that's a public good. Right? Access to the internet. Well, you, would, I mean, you wouldn't imagine them shutting down the internet in America if they have. Of course did. not. Even after, I mean, even after 9-11, or if, say you had a 9-11 happen today. In this generation, they would not shut down the internet. They would not. And you have to wonder sometimes about the pros and the cons of that. Obviously, the pros being, you know, you can get information faster. You can easily communicate stuff and so on. But there have been instances, right, in in the battlefield in Afghanistan and Iraq, where where social media has been used by militant fighters to sort of publicly state where you know, U.S. positions are, right? 
and it it has been a defense threat. I mean, un- undoubtedly. And so again, uh, it really is kind of India is the largest democracy in the world, but they do engage in some undemocratic actions from time to time that call into question just how democratic the country is. And again, this is not to say that other countries don't do that. There are certainly you know, areas in which the United States or maybe even Germany or the UK engage in actions that are, are seen as undemocratic. Um, but really the clampdown, and particularly in minority regions, is of deep concern in India. Yeah. And I mean, like, in a lot of these countries, I feel like they don't know what to do regarding social media. They don't know really what to do. They just think, okay, we can close it off and that's it. There, there's, And I don't know if the social media companies have even provided like a succinct, uh, effective way to help these countries. I mean, I mean, with Kashmir, it's a very controversial move, banning social media. The government of India obviously wants to prevent violence, but you're also engaging in an anti-democratic action. Uh, and again, Kashmiris, they have been repressed by the Indian government, right? But I don't know if social media companies have really offered up any effective solutions, no, right? I, mean, they have, I don't think they have. It's, it's, I think really the, the greatest challenge of our time is figuring out what we do with social media because it's such a great tool for interconnectivity, for news, but it's also a huge threat to our, our, our democracies around the world, our ways of life, whether, what information we get. Ironic because of freedom of speech. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's a value, yet it's a threat to democracies because misinformation and radicalization and polarization are intensifying because of social media. I mean, I'm research on it myself, right? People love insults, people love personal attacks, and they are more prone to retweeting and sharing those messages. Yet here we are, you know? Especially world leaders. Yeah, double-edged sword, man. So, I mean, yeah. Andre, if you have any solutions, let me know. No, I know the I know what the problems are, but I don't really have the solutions. <laughs> unless they hire me, unless Facebook or Twitter hires me, then I can come up with some solutions. But that's wow. how my job hunt is going right now. So, Facebook, if you're listening. Twitter, if you're listening. Um, anyway, Andre, I, I got one more on my plate. Uh, Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, will very soon be stepping down. There are elections on September 26th. Um, and that will mean that uh, Angela Merkel, who is not seeking another term, will no longer be chancellor of, of Germany. It's she. I mean, she has been like the only constant in Europe. I mean, she's led. She to retire. I, I mean, not in a bad way, but she just. I mean, she's been working at it for so long. She just needs to relax. Sixteen years, crisis after crisis, from the you know global financial crisis, the eurozone debt crisis, the migrant crisis, and now COVID nineteen. Uh, she has really seen it all, and it's kind of you know led Germany to be the leader of Europe. I mean, despite some of the the challenges domestically within Germany, kind of trying to figure out their own domestic situation, Germany has been a very strong ally uh, within Europe. Has been a great friend to the United States for the most part, uh, and it's going to be very interesting to see who succeeds her. Yeah. Absolutely. Ryan, what does polling say right now about the upcoming elections? Is there any favorite candidate? Is her CDU? Because I mean, her CDU is pretty strong in general. Is there any chance the CDU does not succeed in these elections? So interestingly enough, the polling data has suggested that no two parties would have a majority in the Bundestag, their their parliament. It is split right now between uh, I mean, a bunch of parties. So the CDU is at 183, the Greens are at 154, the SPD is at 197, um, and some other parties are a bit smaller. And so that's very interesting uh, because, you know, you have 
a bunch of candidates. There's one in particular, Olaf Scholz, who has kind of led the Social Democrats um, into kind of maybe leading out um, Angela Merkel and her conservative party. Um, and you know, back in 2005, that was an attempt. Uh, he's kind of back in the picture. There's a bunch of other uh, individuals back in the picture, but I mean, it's really unknown at this moment. And again, I can't overstate just how crucial Germany is uh, as uh, in, in, in as in the international community. And so, whomever leads Germany will kind of dictate the agenda of Europe and the agenda of the European Union because of how much power Germany holds. And that could very well mean that Germany can cozy up to Russia or Germany can kind of back off its relationship with the United States, which will have reverberations throughout the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Emmanuel Macron is also sort of immersed in this other election struggle as well, right? Like, I think he just launched his re-election, but the guy's been uh, having some political difficulties. He came in on this... uh, sort of wave of hope and all of that stuff a few years back when he defeated Le Pen, Marine Le Pen, the extreme nationalist candidate. But his image has been quite tarnished, but also it's quite common of the French to really hate their presidents and their their leaders once they're in power. But, I mean, Macron's re-election is not really in the bag, right? It's, it's not really in the bag. So, I mean, and France has often been viewed as sort of Germany's partner in terms of leading Europe, right? Like Macron and Merkel have long been seen as the leaders of Europe. So Merkel's gone. You're going to see a new leader in Germany. And we're, it's really up in the air regardless of uh, what happens to Macron in 2022, Exactly. I mean, of course, you know, the, the interesting thing is, will Marine Le Pen have any sort of success? Of course, there hasn't been much success with kind of her party and the far right, particularly when you look at, you know, the, the you know, national and also kind of, you know, subnational voting. Uh, but there seems to be some sort of conservative surge in French regional polls. So that kind of calls into question, if it's not Marine Le Pen, then who? But if, as you said, Andre, uh, Macron is not very popular. There's been, I mean, it just seems protest after protest across France for a variety of reasons, whether they be economic or social. Uh, and so, again, uh, with all these world leaders in kind of flux, not really sure who's going to be leading, that really just, I mean, it raises the question what will the US do? What will the US's role be? And after Afghanistan, I mean, who knows? Yeah, the U.S. role is ever-changing, right? Especially, we don't even know what's going to happen in 2024 <laughs> with our own elections. So, I mean, the, the, the consistency that we w- were once, I guess, fortunate with, with having during the 20th century, at least, uh, that consistency is sort of gone right now, especially with the Trump effect and so on. So, who knows what will happen? But, Ryan, I think that's all the time we have for now. Uh, folks, we're still doing the Sri Lanka miniseries. We just released an episode with former Prime Minister of Sri Lanka, Ranil Wickremesinghe. A great episode. This miniseries is digging into U.S.-China relations and one of the flashpoints in that relationship. Uh, Stay tuned. We have another great episode releasing on Monday. But for now, we'll see you later. See you next time.